please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're continuing in our exposition of Paul's letter, and we are in verses 12 to 14 of chapter 1. We'll be looking at these verses together. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Read along with me. Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these words and look at the life of the man who wrote these words and his circumstances in which he was in, that he kind of paints a picture for us of what you were doing in his life and the lives of those around him. Lord, as we look at those circumstances as we look at these few verses as at the principles found here and help us to glean from them, help us to understand them, help us to remember them, help us to apply them to our own lives here in this time and place. And Lord, as I speak your word, preach your word to your people, I pray that my words would be your words and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's a popular saying concerning life and success, a proverb or a maxim, if you will, which is usually quoted in entrepreneurial circles. It's also quoted amongst athletes and especially um, in militaries around the world and throughout history. And that saying or proverb dates back to ancient Rome. Um, roughly 100 years before Christ. And since then, it has been adopted as a motto by several armies and military units. That saying is that fortune favors the bold. Fortune favors the bold. And, and the term fortune doesn't necessarily refer to wealth in its original context, but to success and good fortune which does include wealth, but that term is more along the lines of victory, of conquest, of triumph. And in understanding that, we see why many businessmen, many athletes, many military leaders throughout history have adopted that motto, fortune favors the bold. However, more than the sense that that motto appeals to so many strong A-type personalities is the fact that that motto is often shown to be true. That fortune favors the bold. And it's not just true in business, sports, or military conquest, but it's true in ministry as well. And one doesn't have to search far in church history to see how bold men of God 
had advanced the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel. However, we also know that it was, it was God who not only emboldened those men, but also guided them and provided the opportunities for them to advance his kingdom. And so it's not just boldness that's required for sex, success, that's a key principle of success, but this condition or circumstance which the secular world may call luck, happenstance, or fortune, that we as believers know to be providence. Providence. And both boldness and providence are required for success, but it's primarily, and one, one could even say exclusively, providence that is required for success. And in this passage, as Paul begins to explain his circumstances and his reasons for writing, we see both of these principles of providence and boldness stand out in Paul's description of his situation as he paints the scene of the series of events which have taken place around him uh, for the Philippians to understand and to see how God has been using him to spread the gospel. And these few verses here, we can see roughly three characteristics of Paul's current situation. Three characteristics of Paul's current situation as he sits in that uh, Roman, uh, in a sense, a, it was an imprisonment, it was a jail, may, may have been, a, as we read at the end of Acts, it says rented quarters. So it, it may not have been um, uh, a damp, dark cell, as we think of. It may have been a little bit more comfortable, but nonetheless, he was imprisoned and he was chained to a Roman guard. In these few verses, he, we, we see three aspects of his circumstances which describe what God is doing through him. The first aspect by which Paul explains what God has been doing is that this is a gospel-centered providence. This is a gospel-centered providence. As he, he says in, in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's, he's, not, he's not dwelling on so much on his circumstances, but how his circumstances have contributed to the advancement of the gospel. It, it's all about the gospel with Paul. This, he views this, his circumstances, his situation as a gospel-centered providence. And we often use this term providence in the church, and, and I often use it as well in, in, in preaching. And, and, you know, if, if you're observant of your life and, and you um, view your life and the things around you from a biblical worldview, you can see providence. You often see it um, looking backwards as, as uh, uh, John Flavel, the Puritan John Flavel said, uh, providence is like, um, is like reading Hebrew. You read it backwards. <laughs> and uh, so we see it clearly backwards, but we use this term providence. And what's interesting about this term is that it's distinctly Christian. This is a distinctly Christian term. And, and as I was, uh, you know, looking a little bit more at providence, and, and I, I just figured I, I'd look it up in, in a, a, just a dictionary. I use uh, 
to do my studies. I use dictionary.com or thesaurus.com. Um, thesaurus being my favorite dinosaur. Um, <laughs> but I use dictionary.com, and, and it's interesting. It's secular, um, and it says this, just to define it. The foreseeing care and guidance of God or nature over the creatures of the earth. God, especially when conceived as omnisciently directing the universe and the affairs of humankind with wise benevolence, a manifestation of divine care or direction, provident or prudent management of resources, prudence, all from the perspective of God and his world and his creation. This is from a secular source, providence. One author um, in his article, The Providence of Jesus, Jerry Bridges, he writes this. He says, we may see that providence is, is God's orchestrating all events and circumstances in the universe for his glory and the good of his people. And this is, in a sense, how Paul begins to describe his circumstances, that they are a gospel-centered providence. And it's provident, providential in three ways. First, it's, it's providential in its commencement. And how Paul even arrived where he was at. How he even arrived in this, this uh, uh, jail or this uh, military barracks or wherever it was chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Uh, from its commencement, uh, we could see providence. It could be traced back all the way to even Paul's conversion when the Lord told Ananias as, as Paul is uh, on the road to Damascus and he's, he's struck blind by the Lord and, and he's, he's uh, sitting in this uh, room and uh, the Lord speaks to Ananias and he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Paul suffered. He suffered willingly and even joyfully to spread the gospel, to proclaim the gospel throughout the Greco Roman world to the Gentiles and, as it says here in Acts 9 15, to kings. We, we could see providence from the point of, of Paul's conversion and on. We also see providence uh, unfolding unfolding in events leading up to Paul's imprisonment. Even as he, he goes on his, his missionary journeys, and uh, in Acts 20 we read how he is um, desiring to go to Jerusalem, to return to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Acts 20, it, it says this, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly, solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. But I do not make my life of any account nor dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of, grace, of the grace of God. You see, Paul, Paul knew his whole life... Uh, was, in a sense, a gospel-centered providence. But as he alludes to here in these few verses in Philippians 1, that um, he is there for the greater progress of the gospel. And so Paul's imprisonment was providential in 
its commencement from the, the time of his conversion and, and just his call to ministry and then even uh, making his way to Jerusalem to Pentecost where he would be um, in prison in a sense. We see his, this gospel-centered providence was providential in its commencement. Second, it was providential in its progression from his arrest, you know, as we can read in Acts 25 as as he, he comes and he, he comes onto the temple grounds and, and the mob uh, gathers around him and he's arrested and he even is able to address the crowd in Hebrew, proclaiming the gospel. And, and then from his arrest to the, the, the escape from the plot to kill him to his appeal to Caesar uh, before uh, Festus, we see it's all this, this uh, 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 progression of events is all providential. Even his journey to Rome, the, the time on the ship, the, the shipwreck, and even his arrival in Rome. We read this in Acts 27 as, you know, it's interesting. Paul himself, this, this prisoner, well-known prisoner, highly guarded so that no one would kill him and um, almost... Uh, we, we could think of, in our own day and age, say, uh, a highly publicized uh, political prisoner. And he's on this ship going to Rome, and, and he's actually um, trying to advise the, uh, the captains about the, the time for sailing, and, and even uh, during the storm. And in Acts 27, it's, it says this in verse 21. And when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice. <laughs> Interesting, this, this, this prisoner. <laughs> and telling these you know, Roman uh, sailors and, and the centurion and the captain, You ought to have followed my advice. And Oh, really? Um, thank you. Um, you're a prisoner of Rome. Uh, we don't need your advice. And he goes on, you ought to follow my advice not to set sail from Crete and to avoid this damage and loss. And now I advise you to be cheerful, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, be cheerful, men, for I believe that God will turn it out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. This whole series of events, it's, it's providential in its progression in all the, the, the uh, people that he comes into contact with, the, um, the narrow uh, uh, calls or close calls from, from death, his narrow escapes. And finally, it is providential in its effects. This gospel-centered providence is providential in its effects because as Paul says in verse 12 of Philippians 1, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. It's almost as if he didn't really expect this. He knew that God was guiding him. He knew that God was leading him. He knew that God had ordained these circumstances and these events to unfold, but he didn't know exactly how it would turn out until this time in which he writes to the Philippians that, this is great. Like, like, like I'm in prison. This is wonderful. 
<laughs> because this has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. You, you can almost see his joy and his elation at what is happening because this, this gospel center is providential in its effects because he, Paul could not have, have gotten access to where he is, where God had placed him in prison. He, he couldn't have gotten into close proximity to these people which he is reaching with the gospel. He could not reach the praetorian guard or Caesar's household in his own power. But God providentially sets him right in the middle there. We see this is this gospel-centered providence is, is providential in its effects. It is for the greater progress of the gospel. And Paul is beginning to see this, and he's beginning to see how God is using him, and he's excited about it. He's excited about it. And it just goes to show you that, that whatever the, the world, whatever the devil, whatever uh, false religions try to do to persecute the church or try to stop the advancement of the gospel, they cannot stop it. They cannot hinder it. And oftentimes, they even help its advance. As Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And yes, it's true, and we, we can read uh, stories throughout church history, and, and even in our current day and age, that there are many places around the world where um, believers are being persecuted, they're being wiped out, churches are being burned, and, and they're chased down, and it's almost as if there's no hope. There's always hope. And God has a plan, and he uses that persecution. He uses uh, the world's assaults against his people to... Advance the gospel. You know, we, we can read about uh, um, Richard Wormbrand's uh, uh, testimony, uh, Tortured for Christ, how he spent uh, 14 years in a communist prison, and, and not just him, but many people around him, many, many pastors. And because he went through that trial, um, uh, his, his book was written. He, he was able to testify before U.S. Congress about his torture, about his persecution. And because of that, a voice of the martyrs has been founded and aids believers all around the world and helps progress the gospel. You can't defeat the gospel. Whatever the world throws at it, it, it it's almost like pouring gasoline on a fire. And trying to put it out. It just makes it rage even stronger. We, we, we heard about it this, this morning in, in adult Sunday school. This perfect illustration of the Puritan John Bunyan. Who uh, during the, the 1600s uh, uh, preached a, a, a man who was radically saved by the gospel. A, a man who, who uh, by his own testimony was the, the most wretched of sinners, the, the, the worst of sinners who had a, a foul mouth and, and was radically transformed by the gospel and began to preach the gospel and, and, and preach it anywhere he could. And, and then um, during this time in England was, in a sense, uh, told, as many Puritan pastors at that time were told, you, you can't preach anymore. You, you can only uh, preach how we say. You can only uh, minister how we say. And, and, uh, and if you don't, then you will be in prison. And so he went to prison willfully. And he, he, 
in a sense, had the, the, the key to unlock his prison door all, the whole time. All he had to do was say, I won't preach. And they would have let him go. He said, no, if you let me go, and even his wife testified, if you let him go, he will preach. And they thought they were silencing him. They thought they were stopping him. But it was in that dark, damp prison cell in which he had the time and the freedom and the isolation to write Pilgrim's Progress, which has spread throughout the whole world, translated in so many different languages, is in a sense the second best-selling book, you know, in the world. It has helped believers. And it wasn't just that book. He wrote other books in that jail cell. And it was all a part of God's providence. Like Paul, that was a gospel-centered providence. This is a term in that um, we should cling to and we should find our hope in that God orders the affairs of men. He orders the affairs of the church. He guides us. He leads us. In uh, the Evangelical Dictionary of the Bible, Walter Elwell, he says this. He defines providence as, he says, providence then is the sovereign, divine, superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature, all to the glory and praise of God. This divine, sovereign, benevolent control of all things by God is the underlying premise of everything that is taught in the scriptures. That, that God, God is in control. You know, and, and I've said this before to, in other messages to other people, um, that it's simple but um, profound in the fact is that God really is God. He's really God. Like, he's really in control. <laughs> and we can sometimes throw around his name or just the, the, the concept of deity. But if God is not sovereign, then he is not God. He is sovereign and he orders all of creation according to his will, according to his decree. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Whatever he pleases. And no one can stop him. No one can thwart his will. No one can say, why have you done thus and thus? He's God. He's God. And this is why we see that the first characteristic of Paul's circumstances, as he saw, is that it is a gospel-centered providence. That God had put him here for the greater progress of the gospel, and he's right in line with the will of God. He's directly in the center of the will of God, and he's not complaining. He's rejoicing. And the second characteristic of his situation here, as he says in verse 13, is that this is, in a sense, a, a, a gospel-focused proclamation that's, that's going out. Verse 13 of chapter 1, so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. This is a gospel-focused proclamation. The proclamation, the news about Paul's chains, about who this character Paul is, about this apostle, about this religious leader. As the news goes out, the reports about who he is, where he came from, why he is here, the gospel is going out as well. It goes out, and it goes out in, in, 
in three ways. There's almost a, a, a progression here so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. A, a progression, in a sense, in three stages. First, from a captive in Christ to a captive audience, and then through the captors to the whole world. This progression of this gospel-focused proclamation concerning this man, Paul, and why he is here in these chains, in this Roman cell, it comes from, first, Paul himself, a captive in Christ. He says, so that my chains in Christ have become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Garden to everyone else. My chains in Christ. In Christ. He's not talking about, you know, the Romans chaining me. Uh, the Roman imprisonment. No, he says, my chains in Christ. Paul understands his imprisonment is ultimately by Christ, it's for Christ, and it's in Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. This is why he, he is here. And this is why he can write in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is him right now. This is him right now. He sees that he is there in Christ for God's purpose to proclaim God's work, to proclaim God's gospel. He's not complaining. He's not bemoaning his circumstance. He's, he, he's not wondering, you know, if, if, if I could really get out of this place, if I could really get out of there, you know, the gospel would really spread. You know, if, if I could just be released you know, if it wasn't for these chains, I could really do some work for God. Nope, nope. He says, he says, right now, God is doing a great work through me, and I am right where I need to be. Right here for the greater progress of the gospel. John MacArthur, he writes that um, those who seek to control their own lives will inevitably be frustrated. A confident trust in God's providence is foundational to contentment. You, you can't have contentment apart from providence. You can't have contentment in this world without a belief in God ordering it. You, you can't have contentment by trying to control every single aspect of your life because you can't control it. You, you can't control it. I mean, even down to the most simple things. Uh, about, um, you know, cooking a meal, you know, and, and trying to, you know, control the time and the temperature and the ingredients so it turns out exactly right. You know, anyone who cooks, you know, you could follow the same recipe over and over again. It doesn't turn out exactly the same. There's so many variables. There's so many variables in your life. I mean, just your, your commute to work or your commute to church. It's not exactly the same amount of time. There's all these variables in life that it, you know, interrupt your, your schedule and your um, intentions, always. It's, it's providence. It's providence. And, and you know, oftentimes, you know, we find ourselves in places, we find ourselves in situations, and, and we're prone to um, compare it to others. We're prone to um, bemoan our circumstances or, or, or think, you know, e even if they're good, e even if everything's going our way, we're like, you know, what would really make this better? What would really make this better? You, you know, you have, a, you have a perfect meal. 
or a great meal. You go out, go out to eat, and, you, and then you, you eat that meal, and you're like, you know, I think we should maybe have some ice cream after. We'll make this even better. It's just the natural discontentment of the human being. It's like we're always trying to make something better, always trying to improve, and just discontentment is just a second nature. Always look at our situations. And what's sad is sometimes we see that discontentment in light of our spiritual um, condition, um, our spiritual work, or, or our work for the kingdom, our ministry. You know, I, I remember um, my last deployment. Um, I, I was almost halfway through seminary when my National Guard unit got alerted to deploy, and so I deployed and, and had a, a two-year break in, in my seminary uh, Education and, and uh, on one hand, it was um, somewhat of an inconvenience, and and, and um, part of me didn't want to go, but part of me did want to break from seminary. And and but there's a sense that you know I'm 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 training for gospel ministry, and then here I have this this interruption to go halfway across the world to Afghanistan, and 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 now I'm here in. Um, what am I going to do here? And just I just have to get through this so I can get back to training for gospel ministry. Um, but God had me there for a purpose, not only um, because he put me in connection with people whom I could share the gospel with, which I otherwise would not have been in connection with, but also to sanctify me, to further conform me to the image of Christ. And Sad to say, to my shame, that I did not take full advantage of all those gospel opportunities. I took advantage of some, but not as many. I, I didn't see this, this deployment, this situation in my life as this is a great gospel opportunity. This is a, a, a circumstance which could turn out for greater progress of the gospel. That, that should have been my mindset. And, and oftentimes that's true for, for most of us. We get a new job, or we um, move to a new community, or, or um, something happens with a, a relationship uh, in the family, and, and we have to move away either to, um, to because a relationship is broken or to heal a relationship, or, or maybe we have a loved one who um, has a tragic accident or a disease, and we have to be the caregiver, and we have this, this great interruption in our, our life, and, and this almost a, 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 a redirection in our course of life, and, and so, much, so often we, we see it as a hindrance. When if we're dwelling on God's providence and his sovereignty, we should see it as an opportunity, as an opportunity for the greater progress of the gospel. And this, this is how Paul is seeing his current set of circumstances. He sees it and he notices how the gospel is going out. It's going out in all the news, all the proclamations of who he is, why he is there. The gospel goes with it. People are preaching the gospel, even though they may not even be believers, just by way of, oh yeah, I hear there's a guy in that prison. I hear, you know, he's pretty popular, a Jew. Um, why is he there? Oh, well, he believes he's, he's from this 
this sect called the the Christians or the Way, and and you know they believe that you know uh, uh, God came down to earth and, and lived a perfect life to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. It, it's crazy. <laughs> And just, you know, and just the, oh, by the way, you know, sharing news, the gospel is going out. The gospel is going out. And he sees it as from, uh, from a, a captive in Christ to a captive audience, to a captive audience. He's here. He, he can't leave anywhere. He's, he's chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. 24-7, he says that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And, and this, this term some of you may have uh, heard about or studied uh, the Praetorian Guard, know a little bit about Roman history. But these, these guardsmen, they, they weren't just your regular foot soldier. They, they weren't just, um, just someone doing guard duty. The Praetorian Guard was an elite, hand-picked uh, unit. All of them, every one of them were, in a sense, if they weren't in the Praetorian Guard, they would be a centurion in the regular Roman army, meaning they would be a leader over 100 men. They, they were, in our modern-day terms, you know, you could uh, say they were, um, uh, you know, uh, Special forces, Navy SEALs, Secret Service, all wrapped up into one. Because they were this elite fighting group, handpicked from the Roman army, who were to protect Caesar and, and to guard Rome. The, the regular Roman army wasn't allowed in Rome, and so the Praetorian Guard was in Rome to uh, protect the seat of power, to guard Caesar, and, and also to guard uh, uh, prisoners of Rome. There was roughly 9,000 of them. And so there was one chained to Paul 24-7. They would rotate in, in roughly six-hour shifts. And um, many uh, commentators and pastors uh, allude to the fact that it's possible that within that two-year time frame that um, all of the Praetorian Guard would rotate through guarding Paul if they rotated through every one of them. Unless they just set a specific unit. But nonetheless, there was guardsmen that rotated through. And as those guardsmen came down, and for six hours, what do you think Paul was doing? <laughs> six hours. Uh, you know, it's just, just like, you know, um, even if Paul didn't say anything, it's just like, you know, the common term you, you hear or you see in, uh, you know, those uh, prison movies or movies about, what are you in for? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Let me tell you what I'm in for. Paul is evangelizing soldiers, and he's not just evangelizing them, but he's listening to them. He's counseling them. He's hearing their stories. You know, because all of these, these soldiers, they're, they're most likely definitely uh, war veterans. They have stories. They have stories of, of their time serving uh, in the Roman Empire. And it's interesting. I, I didn't really see this until um, I started studying for this passage. But, you know, we, we read about um, the, putting on the full armor of God in Ephesians 6. And we can really uh, see that picture, that illustration, which Paul paints, um, which... Uh, 
he wrote that letter at the same time he wrote Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. He, he writes all these letters that are called the prison epistles while he's there in, in Rome. And he writes uh, about the full armor of God. And, and, and most people, can, can uh, most pastors, theologians can look at this illustration of the full armor of God and say, well, this is from Paul's observations of Roman soldiers. And, and yes, it's true that in the Ro Greco-Roman world, um, almost anybody could observe Roman soldiers coming and going. But I think Paul has an even more intimate understanding and knowledge of Roman soldiers as they come and protect him, as they change shifts. He, he observes them taking on and putting off their armor. And he can see, oh yeah, every time they come in, first thing, they take off their helmet. First thing, take off their helmet, sit on the floor. This is how they strap their belt on. This is how they put their breastplate on. This is it's just same thing over and over again. I, you know, he might even have spoken to one of the soldiers, you know, your, your helmet looks a little bit crooked. Like, I noticed some of your other friends, you know, their chin strap is a little bit better. Is there something wrong there? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's stupid armor. You didn't make this right. <laughs> but, you know, just little tiny details like that of just life as a soldier, Paul was able to... Um, to uh, to find an entrance into their own lives and, and counsel them and listen to them and evangelize them and, and tell them why he is here. He has a captive audience for two years. And it's not just them and their own curiosity about him and where he come from and why he got to Rome and, and his whole story that they're, uh, in a sense, having this life-on-life -life discipleship and he's counseling, he's evangelizing them, but then they go share that to others. And as they, you know, do their shift change and, yeah, Paul's a little bit tired today or whatever. Or, you know, he told me this wonderful story about, you know, life in, in, uh, in, in Israel and Palestine. And, and just you should ask him about that. You should ask him about, you know, what, what um, you know, ask him about what the, the, the Roman soldiers had to deal with in Jerusalem. Ask him about that. You know, it's just all these stories going, and Paul has this captive, this great opportunity, and the gospel is going out. It's going out. It's, it's, it's this proclamation is going from a captive in Christ to a captive audience, and third, through the captors to the rest of the world, to everyone else. The, the, the Roman soldiers are, are sharing this story of Paul, sharing the gospel. Some, some of them, they're being converted and they're sharing the gospel with other Roman soldiers. But then they're also sharing it with their family and friends when they go home at night. Uh, and, and not just the soldiers, but there, there had to be uh, just uh, servants, people to clean the place, uh, administrators, um, Merchants maybe delivering goods to the, the, the barracks or Caesar's household. Uh, there's other people that Paul is interacting with. And, and even as he alludes to in some of these prison epistles, we know that disciples are coming to him. He has a little bit of freedom to disciple other people as he writes uh, the, these letters to um, Ephesus and to Philippi and to Colossae. Um, and even his letter to Philemon, there's, there's couriers that are taking these letters. And so Paul has a, a bit of freedom. And so the gospel, this gospel-focused proclamation, the news of, of Paul and why he's here and, and, and Jesus Christ is it's going out to the world from this captive in Christ to a captive audience to the, through the captors to the whole world. To the whole world. 
It's interesting that the, the, the Jews tried to stop him. The chief priests and the elders tried to kill him. Uh, Rome tried, to, in a sense, to silence him. But every, every attack on the gospel, every attack on Paul only furthers the gospel. And it's furthering it. We can see some of these illustrations in our own day and age. Um, some of you, uh, you know, it wasn't long ago and a couple years ago and the whole uh, uh, COVID crisis and all the political things that were happening around and churches shutting down and, and uh, churches closing for some time and churches being forced to close. Um, and uh, there was one such church up in uh, Canada, you may have known, a, a pastor, uh, James Coates, who, who said, no, we're, we're not going to shut down. This is not a real crisis, and, and especially not at the level that you say it is. We are going to gather. And the Canadian government, in a sense, said, well, we're going to make an example of you. We're going to close up your church, and, and we're going to silence you, and we're going to shut you down. We're going to put you in prison, and we're going to put chain-link fence around your church. And, and it, it's interesting. <laughs> they, they, they tried to make an example of his disobedience to the state. But what they really did is they made an example of his faithfulness to Christ and how the world cannot defeat the church because his church almost tripled in size after that. So people wanted to know, unbelievers, Muslims, people from cults wanted to know, who is this God you claim to believe that you're willing to defy the whole government to stay open? When, when you could have just, you know, in a sense, as, as many other churches said, oh, we're just going to stay quiet, we're not going to cause a stir, and we're just going to fly under the radar. Could have done that. He said, no, God says to gather, and we will gather, and we will obey his word, and we will proclaim the gospel. And so the gospel goes out even further. And so we see, as in Paul's circumstances, that the first characteristic of his situation was that it was a gospel-centered providence, which involved a gospel-focused proclamation that was the result of and led to, third, the third characteristic of his circumstances, of his situation, is that he and the brothers had a God-centered perspective. They had a God-centered perspective. It says in verse 14, And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. The brothers have become confident in the Lord. Paul in a sense, from the beginning of this trial, uh, this affliction, this imprisonment, he has a God-centered perspective on these circumstances, on what is unfolding here. And he sees it. He sees God's providence written all over this as the, the gospel is going out through him to the world. Uh, and so he has a God-centered perspective going into this trial. He's rejoicing in it. But then the brothers around him are seeing what is happening, and, and they... They obtain this God-centered perspective. They become confident in the Lord. And this is what every believer needs. Every believer needs to fight for. Because we're prone to, to look at our lives. We're prone to look at our Christianity. We're prone to look at our faith from the perspective of us. Of our activities. Of our circumstances. Of what 
um, hurts us or harms us or what we enjoy or what we would like to do or how we would like to serve or if I had uh, such and such money I would give such and such to this um, this missions organization or this uh, ministry or this church. Uh, we, we always, uh, we're prone to think of our, our Christian lives and, and life in general from the perspective of us. And even when we think of our own spiritual disciplines, you know, I, I evangelize you know, so many people or you know, I, I served in Sunday school for these years or this many, or you know, I preached here or I gave this. You know, it's all about us. I, I, I. We, we have, as, as one preacher said, an eye disease. It's all about us. But we should, we should view our Christianity, we should view our, 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 our life from God's perspective, that, that God brought me here, that, that God saved me. I didn't save myself. I, it wasn't because I, I'm wiser than other people that I chose Christ or that I believed in Christ. No, God, through his grace, gave me the faith to believe. He, he showed me my sinfulness. He drew me to himself. He saved me, and then he sanctified me, and he put me in this particular local church where I get the privilege of serving, and this is how I serve, and this is how God is growing me through this service as I serve these Little ones who can frustrate me sometimes, but I love them. <laughs> and I love their little faces, and they sanctify me. <laughs> but God has, He brings us into so many circumstances, and we should look at all our circumstances from a God centered perspective. And this is how Paul is looking at it. This is how the believers around him are looking at it. They're looking at, 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 at these circumstances. Uh, from the perspective of what God is doing. And first and foremost, of, what, of God's work through his church, through his church having become confident in the Lord. They have far more courage and they, they proclaim the gospel. God is working through his church. He, he's using Paul not only to evangelize, not only to use Paul as a minister, but to use Paul to encourage his church. He's doing a greater work through Paul, not just in saving Roman soldiers, but in encouraging the wider church to be more faithful. Paul's boldness is, is, is in a sense, um, catching fire with others. It, it's becoming contagious. You know, and that's, that's how God works. It's how God works through his church. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to encourage one another. We need to help one another. That's why we need to gather so that we can not only be faithful to God ourselves, but to encourage others, to spur others on to even greater faithfulness. This is, this is God's work Paul sees us. Paul sees this providentially as God's work, and, and the brothers are starting to see this, starting to see that Paul has been put here by God uh, to spread the gospel. And because of that, they're like, you know, Paul's in prison. He's in prison, and look at what, what God is doing through him. Like all these uh, 
centurions, these, these, these praetorian guards, they're, they're starting to come to faith. And, and, and what am I doing here? I'm just, I'm just like, I have all this freedom. And I can go places Paul can't go. And so they're becoming more bold, more confident. And this is how we, should, we ought to look at our circumstances, how we ought to look at where God leads us, where God directs us. You know, we, we make our plans. As Proverbs says, man plans his ways, but God directs his steps. And we should plan. We do have to plan for things in life. We do have to be diligent and wise and, and, and faithful and good stewards of our time and our resources. But we should see, we should be sensitive to providence to see how God is directing our steps. Because, you know, we go places. God sends us places. And, you know, for some of us, you know, it might be that you thought that, you know, you were getting a good deal on a house. In Rome, may have known, oh, oh, yeah, I know that guy. I know that guy in Philippi. Yeah, I served with him in this legion. There may be an, already a connection, and now there's an even greater connection. John MacArthur, he writes this. He says that worry is a sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. And yet it is a sin that Christians commit perhaps more frequently than any other. We worry all the time. And our worry is almost always linked to our circumstances. It's linked to our current circumstances. It's linked to our plans, what we have planned for the day, what we have planned for the week ahead, our task list that we have to get done, what we left undone, what may happen if we don't get X, Y, and Z done. And those are real concerns. But we're not to become sinfully worried and anxious and fearful about them. We're called to trust God and his leading and his guidance, and especially in the big, great circumstances of life and where he leads us. You know, if, if you dwell on all the circumstances of your life and whether they're good or bad, you'll end up going through life riding an emotional roller coaster. And some of us, we, we know that experience. But if you dwell on God and his providential guidance and conforming you into the image of his son and using you to build his kingdom, then life, in a sense, becomes an adventure. Life becomes an adventure when you have this God-centered perspective on life and you understand providence and you embrace it and you embrace sovereignty, though you don't have all the answers. When you do that, life becomes an adventure. You'll still go through the same ups and downs. That's not necessarily going to change. But when you embrace God's sovereignty and purposes in it all, you'll handle them in ways which honor and glorify Him, and you will be much more joyful. That's why Paul says at the end of Philippians, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He's writing that from prison. He's writing that as he sees the greater progress of the gospel unfold through his circumstances. He's able to rejoice. He tells other believers to rejoice and to rejoice always. And how are they to rejoice? In the Lord. In the Lord. Not so much in their circumstances, but in the Lord who has ordained their circumstances, who is guiding them through their circumstances, who is using their circumstances to conform them into the image of his son and to spread the gospel. 
we can rejoice in the Lord. But only those of us who are in the Lord, who have a relationship with the Lord, who know the Lord, who have repented from their sins and have come to the Lord, have, have in a sense, uh, confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as Romans chapter 10 says. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. You can only rejoice in the Lord if you have confessed Him as Lord, if you have repented from your sins and trusted Him as Lord and Savior, have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. Only then can you rejoice in Him. and Only then do you have hope of eternal life and, and hope of life in this world. So if you can't rejoice in the Lord, if you struggle with rejoicing in the Lord, you first have to ask the question, are you in the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Have you come to the Lord? And yes, it's true that many believers throughout their whole lives will struggle with worry and anxiety and fear. But we need to be, as Paul says in Philippians 4, to learn contentment. To learn contentment, to rejoice in the Lord, to trust in Him to hope in Him. And we rejoice in Him because He lived a perfect life which none of us could live and went to the cross to die the death which we all deserve to die. In Him we have forgiveness of sins, a hope of eternal life. And because of that, we do what He commands us to do, to celebrate that sacrifice, to celebrate it, to uh, remind ourselves of what He has done on our behalf to uh, come to this table, which we're about to come to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that He was given a body for us. He was given a body that it may be crushed. He was given blood that it may be spilt on our behalf, that He was sacrificed for us and for our sins, that through Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. And so we celebrate that. And so as we prepare our hearts and minds to come to this table. All those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who have been born again, who have repented from their sins and have trusted in Christ, you're welcome to celebrate with us. You don't have to be a church member. You do have to be a member of Jesus Christ, of His body, of His universal church in order to celebrate this. But also, you have to be... Uh, you have to be a, a believer that is not in um, unrepentant sin. That's not living in unrepentant sin. Because as Paul tells the Corinthians, we are to examine ourselves. We are not to eat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so the, the call is to examine ourselves. And so if you're striving towards holiness, not... Uh, living a perfect life because none of us could live that. But if you're a true believer and you're striving towards holiness and obedience, then this table is for you and we welcome you. But if you're not a believer or if you're living in gross, unrepentant sin, then you should abstain. So I'm going to pray for us and then the men will direct you to gather the elements and then we will uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your guidance. We thank you for your good and perfect providence in our lives. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but have uh, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to 
the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we thank you for this passage, for the reminder of your providence to rejoice always, to trust in you, to trust and obey. And so, Lord, as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, help us first to examine ourselves, to confess any known sins, and to... uh, Second, to rejoice in the fact that there was a perfect sacrifice made for us so that we can be cleansed, forgiven, and have eternal life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.